Welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. I'm Alec. And I'm Haley. And before we get into the interview, this is a reminder to subscribe and follow us on social media. If you're listening to us but aren't subscribed yet, you know what to do. Just go into the app wherever you're listening to us, hit the subscribe button. If you're not following us on social media, head over to Twitter. We're at Fly on the Wall Pod. We're also at Fly on the Wall Pod on Facebook and Instagram. Give us a follow. We promise we'll follow you back. Finally, we're at Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, we'd love to hear from our listeners. So this week on Fly on the Wall, we have Suzanne Kiampour. Suzanne is a foreign affairs and political journalist for the BBC. She's currently covering foreign policy and national security issues, leading the Washington side of the BBC's investigation into Russia's role in U.S. politics, foreign influence, and the special counsel's probe. In the past, she's also covered Capitol Hill and the State Department. We were lucky to have Suzanne on campus as a GU Politics Fellow this fall. Now let's get into the interview. Suzanne Kiampour, welcome to Fly on the Wall. We're excited to have you. Uh, I want to start off uh, with your first couple weeks in the Middle East. So you were stationed there for BBC a bit in the summer of 2014, uh, which is a very tumultuous time for the region region, uh, with numerous developments around ISIS as well as the war between Israel and Hamas along the Gaza border. So just start us off at the beginning. How did you end up in the Middle East? So I um, cover foreign affairs, foreign policy, um, as well as at the time, I was basically splitting my time between Capitol Hill and the State Department. And I traveled around with John Kerry covering the Iran nuclear talks mostly at the time. Um, but, you know, a lot of Syria, um, a lot of covering the Syria conflict and um, at that time, U.S. policy towards Syria. And anyway, I uh, wanted to be on the receiving end of U.S. foreign policy. You know, I went into my bureau chief's office and had a discussion about how I am expected to, you know, run around the hill with a microphone, shoving a microphone in the faces of senators and asking them questions about places that I hadn't been to, I hadn't lived in, so I wanted to, you know, really live the story, so to speak, which is funny because that's actually BBC's sort of marketing motto. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so uh, the my my bureau chief, at, uh, who is still my bureau chief now, he had been the Middle East bureau chief as well before he came to DC. And so we discussed whether we should go to Jerusalem, if I should go to Jerusalem or to Beirut, Lebanon, um, in which case the decision was made for me to go to Beirut for various reasons, mainly because Beirut's also really fun. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I remember right before I went, uh, my boss said, yeah, you know, the region's kind of quiet right now. And, you know, anywho, uh, I land. The region was not quiet. I land in Beirut. Uh, basically, ISIS is at the gates. There were three suicide bombs in Lebanon that week. Um, and uh, at the time, my then husband came with me, and he, it's like blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, but we were getting reports that a um, like ISIS terror terror cell mm-hmm. had been uh, found, and a suicide plot had been kind of thwarted. And it was around the corner from the apartment that we were living in, so I kind of had to call him and tell him to sort of stay in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah, I mean that was you know that was our first week, and. Um, And uh, I remember um, one of those suicide bombs happened in southern Beirut. And um, we went, you know, when that happens for our own safety precautions and reasons, we have to wait until um, we're sure that, or at least as sure as we can be, that there isn't going to be 
you know, another attack or, mm-hmm. or kind of copycat or anything like that. And so anyway, um, the next day we went down and assessed the damage and basically this suicide bomber had, had kind of a unsuccessful car bomb attempt in terms of unsuccessful in terms of being able to take out a lot of people. Thank goodness. Um, obviously he was killed and the imprint of a body, like a bloodstained body was on the side of the building and you know there's obviously debris and everything every there everywhere um he had tried to attack a cafe where you know men women and children were watching the world cup because this was during ramadan at the time so i was also there during ramadan um and um yeah but you know the people there i was so this was like my first week right i was just so taken aback by how just you know, um, I remember the cafe owner said, if it's my time to go, then I'm going to go. I said, well, are you going to show the um, game tonight? Said, yeah, of course. Oh, you really like the World Cup then? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they do. And they, you know, they live, they live their life to the fullest despite the dangers. Yeah, so you also spent some time in Tripoli, and that's a more, even more conservative place and more religious, and that was also during Ramadan. What was that like? So that trip was interesting. Uh, we went up there. I went with my BBC Arabic colleagues, and I kind of we sort of made the decision that I wasn't going to speak that much, <laughs> didn't to not draw attention to not just because I was American, but also because my dad is Iranian. Like that was really more of the issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, I spent a lot of my time in Lebanon being Italian, which my mom is Sicilian, so I just highlighted that side. <laughs> um, actually, I'm sort of sidetracking with a kind of funny story about that, just to show you how, because Lebanon's very culturally diverse, contrary to what, you know, what we might think in the U.S. We think that, you know, it's like, all oh, the Middle East, and so everybody's Muslim, for example, right? But that's not the case at all, especially in Lebanon. Lebanon is very, you know, there's Sunni, Shia, Christian, etc. Um Anywho, I remember I was going through, um, I was going through the, when I first landed, I was going through the airport and the guy's looking at my passport back and forth and I'll get to the Tripoli, I promise. <laughs> um, but he's looking through my passport and then he stops and I'm getting a little bit nervous. Cause I'm like, mm. um, and he asked me in Arabic if I'm Lebanese and I said, no. And then he asked me kind of, okay, so what are you? And I'm like... So I'm like, um, well, I'm American. He said, yeah, but what are you? And I said, well, my dad's Iranian, but my mom's Italian. Yeah, I was like really fast. And then he stops. And he's like going through my passport again, and I'm getting a little bit nervous. And then finally he goes, who do you root for in the Mundial? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously the World Cup. And I thought, right. So Iran's in the World Cup, the U.S. is in the World Cup, and Italy is in the World Cup. But everybody loves the Italian team, so definitely Italy. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we anyway that was kind of our our sort of go to cover for when we went to places like Tripoli, for example. It was during Ramadan. We were going up there to meet a Salafi sheikh who had been getting threats from ISIS sympathizers and um, recruiters basically on WhatsApp and he was showing them to us. And anyway, we had a really interesting discussion with him. Um, but afterwards we were starving and, uh, we went to this cafe, but we kind of had to hide in the corner of the cafe and eat really quickly because what was happening during Ramadan was that, um, you know, kind of extreme elements 
were driving by and throwing grenades into the cafes that were open during fasting hours. Yeah. Wow. So uh, quite the quite the experience there. So let's uh, let's also talk a little bit. Like I said at the top, you covered uh, some of the war in Gaza that happened in the summer of twenty fourteen. Um, so take us through the first few days that Secretary Kerry was in Cairo trying to broker a ceasefire. What was it like covering that? Well, so that was uh, that was interesting. So um, you know, I I usually was the one traveling with Kerry from the states. You know, usually I, we went to Air Force Base Andrews and you know the whole thing. But this time I was joining the bubble. That's what we call it. Called the kind of this press corps bubble from Beirut because I'd been stationed there. And um, anyway, um, so I joined them in Cairo. Um, but while I was in Cairo. Uh, I got word from one of my Hamas sources in Beirut um, that Khaled Michal, the Hamas leader in exile, who lived in Doha, uh, in exile, obviously, um, one, wanted to do an interview with us, with the BBC. And so I had to mobilize really quickly and kind of, you know, leave Cairo in the dead of night, find a... A crew, find a translator, find production company, just the whole works. And it was the end of Ramadan, and it was Thursday, and it's just, I mean, the odds were against me. <laughs> they were not in my favor. Um, and on top of that, I didn't actually have, one, I definitely didn't have a location for where we were going to meet ahead of Hamas. Um, <laughs> and wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> and two, um, I didn't have uh, a, a time, like a specific time. So I'm making all these plans without an actual, without any legitimate logistics in place. I mean, this thing could have just ended up not happening. And I'm assuming you didn't tell the bubble about it. Oh, no. <laughs> Definitely not. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, yeah. Uh, did not tell the bubble about that. Sort of disappeared in the dead of night. Uh, waiting super anxiously in Doha. It was very hot. I basically had no nails left. Finally, about half an hour or so, um, maybe an hour, can't remember now, it was four years ago. Um, I Half an hour or an hour after we were, we like thought we were gonna be meeting, I get word and we end up um, in like this Hamas kind of caravan. Like we weren't blindfolded or anything, but I could not tell you where we were, or where we were going, even though I was sort of trying to kind of look at markers and, um, anyway, we end up in this very nondescript um, neighborhood outside Doha, um, and there's armed guards there, and they take our phones and laptops, etc. I was allowed to keep my iPad because I was like, I need to take pictures for our social media, um, and you know, we called London, told them the situation, also. You always, in these situations, have to have contingency plans because it, it's not—it's not so much the fact that um, you know, I don't know, you're in a interview room with the head of Hamas, right? That's—I mean, not, not going to go down like a political <laughs> rabbit hole because, like, obviously, different people see Hamas differently. But it's more a people like that are targets. So if you're in the if you're in the in the vicinity of somebody who's a target, you need to be cognizant of that, right? So anyway, we had our plan with London and if you haven't heard from us from X time, you know, plan in place, etc. Anyway, so we're we're waiting for Khaled Michal and um, we're in a like a very nice tent type room over air conditioned. 
Um, and there's guards at the door, and he comes in, and he speaks perfect English, but he doesn't do the English doesn't do the interview in English. Also, not surprising. Um, and so yeah, we had half an hour interview with him, and asked him all the tough questions like, why are we sitting here in this nice tent when your people are, you know, getting or dying or getting killed, depending on what side you're on and how you see it. They saw it as some, you know, the Israelis were saying that Hamas was using children in Gaza as human shields, etc. So we asked these really tough questions. And, you know, at that point, you're kind of, I was producing this. So we are, um, one of our senior correspondents flew in from London to do it. He's a great interviewer. I mean, he's one of our best interviewers. He hosts a show called Hard Talk. So that gives you an insight into the tone, what right? the yeah. tone of the interview was like. Um, anyway, long story short, all went well. So then I had to find a way to feed an hour of tape back to London in order to cut it together and air it. And I had to go through a lot of obstacles in order to make that happen. Al Jazeera was a huge help, even though they are, are, um, they are our competitors. Um, anyway. So, uh, I also happened to manage to take the last flight out from Doha, like basically anywhere in the Middle East. I mean, luckily it was going to Cairo where I needed to go. Um, as I was about to get on the plane, I look up and I see our interview was airing on BBC in the airport. And one of, um, one of Carrie's staffers emailed me and they had had something planned and with the bubble and asking where are you and I'm like look at the television <laughs> yeah well wow, so you were drawn away from Cairo was there any deliberation whether or not you should go um, was it an easy decision for you I mean there's no question about go oh to Cairo or to Doha to um, to talk with the leader from us to Doha no I mean you know we our job as journalists is to speak to you know, all sides of the story. And so that this is, it's an interesting question actually, because, um, so in 2016, uh, the attempted coup in Turkey, air quotes around attempted coup, because there's debates about whether that was an attempted coup or if it was a coup, etc. Anyway, moving on. Hmm. Um, Fethullah Gulen, this Turkish cleric who, who's living in exile in Pennsylvania, this very surreal place in the middle of the forest of central Pennsylvania. There's like butterflies and cats everywhere. It's it's very, I mean, it's very surreal. Um, the Erdogan side calls the Gulenists kind of a, like a cult-like group and um, blames a lot of uh, things that are anti-Erdogan on Gulen. Anyway, uh, he blamed Gulen for this attempt to overthrow him and we went up there and did an interview with him and um, we we got a fair amount of pushback from the Turkish government um, because you know they thought that we shouldn't have interviewed somebody like that why would we have interviewed somebody like that um, I mean listen even even if it's somebody like al-Baghdadi from ISIS, you know, but it's our it's our job to understand and help our viewers and listeners understand. And so how are we going to do that if we don't talk to these people? I mean, how are we going to make people understand why people join ISIS 
if we don't talk to them. So yeah, you have considerations in terms of your safety when you end up talking to people like that. Um, and there's stuff in place, but in this particular situation, it wasn't as high risk. Yeah. So, um, for a quick change of pace, now we're going to move into our final segment that we like to do on flying the wall called the lightning round. Um, so this will just be questions, hopefully not too hard. And just the first thing that comes to mind. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> if you could travel to one country again or choose one to travel to that you haven't yet, which would it be? I haven't been to China. Haven't been to China. I've not been to China. Okay. Wouldn't have guessed that. Okay. <laughs> Where do you get your news? Uh, Twitter first. So, I mean, obviously I follow all of the relevant people and news outlets and whatnot, but Twitter's my first place. If you had to pick one news outlet. Obviously the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, what's one language you wish you spoke but didn't, but you don't? Um, well... I wish I spoke fluent Arabic, but I don't. Okay. <laughs> I, any I know that you a like bit. Speak any of and uh, Russian. Russian. I mean, I know a few words after my trip there this summer. Cool. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much uh, for coming on Flying the Wall. It's been a great interview. I'm glad we could do it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Flying the Wall. It was great to hear about Suzanne's experiences. And one more reminder, like I said at the beginning of the episode, follow us on social media. We're at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Follow us, we'll follow back. Shoot us an email, flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, uh, make sure to subscribe right there in your app. Just press the subscribe button. Super easy. We'll see you next week.